Hi everyone, Tim Carone. I'm the host of the What's Our Future podcast. I'm a member of the Society of Catholic Scientists. And in this interview, I, uh, or in this podcast, interview other Catholic scientists about the research, how that research fits into some of the big questions we face and church teachings. And then we also explore my guests' Catholicism, the religious journey, what parts of church teachings they find challenging as a scientist and why. Finally, we discuss the future of their area of research as well as future faith and reason. Now, it's been a while since I the last podcast. I thought I was going to have a relaxing summer and get a lot of work done, especially on the podcast, but that didn't quite happen. and Things didn't quite turn out the way I thought. First, my son... Uh, who works for a, a large auditing company, they decided they could, they don't have to come in the office anymore. So he decided to move from Minneapolis back here to, to uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And so I had to go up and help him move, which involved a lot of manual labor uh, that I wasn't prepared for. And then um, I had to drive a truck, kind of like my old times in college, when I you know, pick up a few bucks, drive a beer, uh, beer truck or something. But, um, you know, I had a, it was a really hot uh, couple of days. And, and one day I took a break under the uh, shade, have a cigar, and uh, I was reading the uh, book, the new apologetics book from Word on Fire. And I was actually rereading this one essay and this guy walks up and he sees the book and looks at me and goes, are you Catholic or Christian? I said, "Uh, yeah, I'm Roman Catholic. He goes, well, I'm a Christian transhumanist and let me tell you what's wrong with the church. So he launches into this tirade about, you know, why the Catholic Church is so evil and why transhumanism is the future and so on. Now, you got to realize, one, I'm exhausted and tired. Two, I'm trying to enjoy my cigar. And I really can't go anywhere because I'm waiting for my son to get back. And, um, you know, it wasn't anything for me to do. And there wasn't a lot of shade around. And I was sort of stuck listening to this guy. Uh, I think the thing that kind of angered me most about it. I'll use the word anger Um, was, you know, he spent a lot of time talking about revelations and I realized my understanding of revelations is weak and I kind of knew that, but this really drove it home. So I put out an email, a bunch of people responded, you know, you all were very helpful with it. I think I've, I've developed a better understanding of revelations than I had a few months ago. Um, but you know, he still ruined my cigar break, which really sets me off sometimes, you know, anyway, um, but I had to drive the truck. I had a whole bunch of manual labor to do, which I was not anticipating. Um, and then, you know, kind of in short order, my wife, uh, she, she had some problems. So she was diagnosed with a hip, uh, you know, condition, you know, arthritis, they scheduled her hip replacement for Halloween. And then uh, she's a flight attendant and she flew a trip from Chicago to Barcelona, Spain. On the way back, she slipped on the, in the galley on something and tore her meniscus in her knee. And 
you know, that was kind of brutal. We had to get that fixed. And then as soon as that was sort of over and she was finishing up um, with physical therapy, uh, she gets hit by a hit and run driver who really hit her pretty hard from the side, from the angle. And uh, it looks like now she has a torn rotator cuff in her left shoulder, which has to get repaired or something. So I spent a lot of time, time taking care of my wife and uh, following orders, but uh, that was not, that was not a lot of fun. And then top of it all, I got a call from Marquette. They had, uh, they found out I had helped start up the data science uh, curricula at Notre Dame. And in particular, there's one course they knew about that they wanted me to teach. And so I had a lot more prep to do in August for now I'm teaching not only at UW Whitewater, but at uh, Marquette, which is cool. But it's just, you know, as you all know, a lot of work to teach. Um, so anyway, I, I got a lot less done on my podcast this summer. And I thought um, I do have people teed up to interview um, follow up with them. I'm also going to have some solo podcasts on artificial intelligence and uh, my my take on the unidentified aerial phenomenon that uh, there's been some you know news about in the last six months with the Navy's videos and things. I'm also finishing up a review of the new apologetics book from Word on Fire. You know, in general, it was really good. I enjoyed a lot of the articles. A couple were kind of disappointing kind of fell short. There was one article I don't think should have been there. It was on the, the meaning of quantum mechanics. I'm not quite sure why they put that article in there. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it because, you know, I have a PhD in physics, so I took a lot of uh, quantum courses, field theory. And uh, so, you know, I enjoyed it. But, I, you know, there's not a lot of people or evangelists out there who, who need uh, uh, understanding of quantum mechanics, especially since we don't understand it. So anyway, today I interviewed Jeff Willard, who's at University of British Columbia, Vancouver. Um, he's in computer science. We go deep into structure of actually biological molecules, how he uses computation as a tool to understand these causal processes sort of at the microscopic level. And, you know, we discuss his faith journey and some sort of interesting topics around faith and reason. Uh, Jeff's just a very interesting person. I think you'll find the podcast is unique. I hope you value it. Uh, please subscribe to it, share it with anyone you think might be interested and, and let us know how much you like it by giving it a five-star rating. But I would appreciate you letting others know about it. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Tim Carone with the What's Our Future podcast. Today I'm with Jeffrey Woolard, who is a graduate student in computer science. And Jeff, thanks so much for, for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So Canadian, yeah, second one in a row. I know you and Peter are, are connected in a lot of different ways. Um, so, so just briefly tell us about yourself. Yeah, well, I met Peter when I was in uh, Toronto, USA. Oh, I mean, uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. But now <laughs> I'm back on the best coast in Vancouver, where I, I actually, I, I, I'm, uh, I've been here on UBC campus for quite a while. And I came here in 2006 to uh, do science, and I ended up studying biological physics. 
And at that time, it was a really important, um, special part of my time of my life where I was, uh, I just had this big conversion experience and I got baptized in my first year and I was really hungry to, um, to learn. And I was learning a lot about philosophy and theology at the same time as I was learning about biochemistry and thermodynamics and actually not that much computer science that came a lot later. And, uh, and then I, I got my degree here and did my master's here, went to Toronto to work. And I did some other work also outside of science with youth development and then came back uh, just last year in, in summer 2021 to work on my PhD in computer science. Cool. And I've always been really interested, um, I guess, academically in the question, what makes a living thing alive? What is life? And uh, it's interested me more than other things in physics, I don't know, like astrophysics, because, well, I'm not a star. <laughs> I'm not a... I'm not a planet. I'm a living thing. And, uh, and uh, what's inside of me is inside of other living things. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a minor question to ask and talk about, I think. What is life? Uh, how does it work? So I actually have a couple of questions for you teed up to, uh, to ask about that. But um, so... In your, what's your degree or your research focused on? My research is, so I was actually doing a PhD at the University of Toronto uh, in a department of medical biophysics. And I was doing, I was focusing on this type of structural biology technique where we can see biological molecules atom by atom. And there's many techniques to, to get that type of data, uh, x-ray crystallography and uh, NMR spectroscopy, and also um, electron uh, cryo-electron microscopy, which quite recently was able to really see at fine detail uh, where atoms are spatially in 3D. And I was doing experimental biochemistry. I was, uh, I was at the bench with my pipettes, and I thought I could do it all. I thought I could do that and also write some algorithms and write some software. I had worked in some software startups in Toronto in this space. And, you know, there's just this centripetal force of specialization. I saw the quality of the experimentalists that were training me and, and just <laughs> how things didn't necessarily come that easy to me. I could, I could, you know, I could only be super, superhuman to a certain extent. And, uh, and also what the people mentoring me were really good in, what they're trying to train me in. And so I decided to find another group where I could develop software develop algorithms and and I came out here for that. It didn't it actually didn't work out to switch within U of T. I tried that. And um and I'm really glad it's I think it's a, good, a better fit. I'm much better at it and I'm enjoying it a lot more. And interestingly enough, the time I put in in the lab at the bench goes a long way because a lot of my other colleagues who are doing sort of what I'd call pure computer science, it's so pure that they're <laughs> they're sort of not sure where they'll end up, where their career will be, if it's really that important, if even they're that motivated or interested for it. It's kind of, uh, I'm working on a particular problem with a particular community, with hardware, with measurement devices, uh, that's part of a larger context of biomedical research. So um, that actually goes a long way. And I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying training in all the 
new tools and approaches in my new home department. So do you have a, an actual research topic you're going to specialize in? or? Yeah, so I'm working on 3D reconstruction from 2D microscope images of biological molecules. So it can be any data set, any one sample, but I'm focusing on algorithms that give a dynamic picture of what's happening with single molecules. And I'm also... Um, my goal is to, at a high level, change the way that experimentalists collect data to collect more raw data uh, that has less uh, time averaging together. And I'm trying to make algorithms that extract that signal reliably and that um, can sort of show the movie of the molecules wiggling and jiggling in time. So it's interesting. You have a, um, your works potentially drive some of the um, empirical studies and exactly how they, the instrumentation they use, the process for taking the data. Yeah, I want to be able to capture all that knowledge in more of a formal, less heuristic way that's end-to-end in, in, in a whole uh, algorithm that tracks the uncertainty and quantifies that uh, and goes from very raw data to the final interpretable scientific consumable of its form of its information uh, in a way that's familiar that would be for for a protein biochemist would be a atom file that would have alpha carbons and and side chains and atom labels and and then you can answer questions like where should my drug bind where do i where how should i a medicinal chemist can look at an ensemble a group of related structures and say okay maybe we should make this module and our new chemical a bit smaller or a bit bigger or make it charged, and do structure-based drug design. But do they make those decisions based on what they view from your uh, algorithm, so the images they can see, and then from that they can make some determination about what to do, or is it more quantitative than that? They, I mean, in the field of structure-based drug design, medicinal chemists and structural biologists and whole kind of teams will get together, look at structures, and brainstorm about how they should be driving uh, assays and synthesis to search chemical space to have uh, tight binders, specific binders. There's many other non-structural-based research in early lead drug discovery and design. But when, you, when the structure is available and, uh, and you have a way of coupling that structural knowledge to experiments that give you answers and it in a quick, efficient way, then you can start to do structure-based drug design. And, and there has been cases of drugs taken through all the way to the clinic that have been based on the, have started in structure-based drug design. Interesting. I learned a bit about them in medical biophysics, some of these leukemia drugs. Yeah, it's interesting how people who have, you know, the in-the-weeds experience or in the field and they come out and how well informed they are for people who'd never go there. Uh, I, that's happened a few times in my life where, you know, you're, you're in the weeds, you're in the, the, the middle of, of getting stuff done empirically. And then you go and you talk to those who sit at their desk all day. And it's amazing the gap in their knowledge between, you know, sort of theory and how stuff actually gets done and, you know, it's, it's 
for them, it's a bit of a learning experience too. So what kind of, of approaches do you take? I know that we had talked previous about a number of things you, 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 you're exploring around. Uh, this is clearly a data-driven, data-driven approach, right? But what kinds of programming paradigms or models are you using? Well, I'm really interested in combining my early training in physics and interest to know how the measuring devices work, what physical equations are governing the system, what happens first, what happens second, what happens third, the whole temp, the whole causal sequence, together with uh, deep learning in order to undo what the microscope does. So to have a physics simulator that can go from, I can simulate an image. So if this was the case, if all the atoms were arranged in such and such a way and the microscope was in such a state and the noise level was this high and there was this amount of blurring and moving and damage, this is what the image would look like, physics simulator. And then being able with deep learning to learn the inverse function, to estimate how you undo that, how you go from an actual experimental image that you take and capture and then get estimates, get probability estimates on what is the state of everything, of the atoms, of the microscope, of the damage, and so on and so forth. And the area, the kind of perspective I'm using to do that, I'm drawing a lot on probabilistic um, programming languages and probabilistic deep learning where you the physics equations give some probabilistic structure and you can be learning the parameters that govern that structure from deep neural nets. There's some normal distribution, for instance, with the mean and variance, and you can feed a neural network images of what you've captured and have it spit out parameters that you yourself will choose what equations they go into and thereby make them in some way interpretable. And then based on how well your, your, that simulator ends up agreeing with the actual image, the neural network update is, updates its parameters in order to have that agree. So, yeah, so this is being done in lots of different areas of, of, uh, of physics, of chemistry, where you have, uh, I guess, other areas too, but I'm really excited about these, these areas. We have high-fidelity uh, physics simulators, and then you can um, really incorporate your knowledge. And if you're not sure exactly what state of something, something is, you can, you can express uncertainty over your uncertainty and have some sort of hyper-knowledge about, well, we know it's a positive number, or we know it's you know, somewhat small positive number, and let's, at least that's some knowledge, and we can use that to guide how the whole system is sort of coupled together. When you look at an image, and these are very kind of, it looks like an old TV with no white, with, uh, with, with, with salt and pepper, uh, kind of uh, a blizzard, right? And there's some faint sort of signal, and, and you can imagine, oh, maybe it's rotated this way, and it's oriented this way, and maybe it's moved around and been deformed in a certain way, and maybe this piece is kind of uh, coming apart here, but you're not sure. And if the microscope state was, if, if things were sort of being blurred out or, or warped from the, 
microscope optics that gets confounded and entangled with the state of the actual system. And in the end, you really, an experimentist really wants to know, like, what are all the, where, what is my protein doing? How is it dancing? How is the dance of life happening? And they want to average out everything else as a, as a nuisance, which is a nuisance, nuisance variables. From a physics perspective, the wave functions have already collapsed, right? When you are viewing them. So you're kind of in the, are you in the classical regime of physics? Well, that's what I like so much about, about this space is that it's, you know, in some sense you can't, you can't get away with things being purely classical. But actually your classical intuition does go a long way. So you can track, first off, how does the whole system work? You, you have this amazing piece of machinery that's been improved and the people have taken up Feynman's charge. Physicists have improved electron microscopes and they've improved their resolution, their stability. And here you go, you have this 300,000 volt potential and there's an uh, uh, electron gun and the electron is excited off its tip and it's very, at the exact, very precise energy window, very coherent and it zips down in one room. You, you're, you're, you're seeing the column, you're seeing it right there. It zips down the column, it's going at three quarters the speed of light and, uh, and it interacts with your sample, diffracts because based on the spaces between atoms, it's like a, each, each space between atoms is like a double slit experiment, so it's like a billion slit experiment. Then the magnetic lenses refocus that electron, and uh, because it's charged, they have uh, their field, it gets moved in a, a magnetic field, and it lands on a detector. And yeah, its wave function collapses. I mean, we have to, I'm really interested in these questions about like the physical interpretability of quantum mechanics and if we should even, how we should think in our mind about these things. So I, I believe that it matters. It's not just, uh, it's not just, um, a kind of, uh, purely speculative question that it, it matters for doing good science and getting good ideas for, for modeling and, um, having efficient algorithms, our physical intuition, the physical meaning of what a wave function is and uh, what's happening as the electron interacts with the detector physically. And, uh, and then there you go, and that happens. It, it, it lands, and the bloop, there's a little count. And an electron microscope image that takes like one second to acquire is like 4,000 by 4,000 pixels, and it has counts, it has, you know, some of the electron counts in the pixels are hundreds, and you can have rapid film uh, rate uh, frame rates where you've captured many, many, many frames uh, and have single detection, um, direct electron detection, where if there's some energy deposited, it's extremely likely to have just come from one electron because everything around it is empty because it was so fast. Yeah, and so that happens, and you get the image back, and all that has happened in like one second. It's an amazing thing. Do you, is same thing happen with molecules? The same process you just described? Yeah, your sample is molecules. So it's a you do some protein biochemistry. You are going typically people are going for like one specific protein, and they purify it. They have it in a little tube. They put like one uh, microliter, tiny little drop, bloop, 
on a three by three metal grid, uh, and they remove the excess liquid. So it's very thin, just tens of molecules thin, and then plunge it into cryogen, into frozen, into something that's so cold, it's like minus 200, that it's uh, solid. And then you keep it at that frozen temperature as you're acquiring the image. And uh, hopefully it hasn't, doesn't have too many artifacts where it's, it's kind of deformed from what it was while it was at room temperature, while it was in the cell. Of course it does. It does some cool things. Like I believe it shrinks. It actually shrinks when it freezes slightly and, and unshrinks when it uh, warms up. So... You know, you talk about this, and the, and the thing that comes to my mind is, is you know, something that's always intrigued me. And it's, it's difficult to, let me put it this way. When I was in grad school, you know, we took courses in quantum mechanics and, and E&M and so on. I also took a course in, in quantum electrodynamics and standard model. And, you know, the attitude as well, once we have these fundamental laws like the standard model, then we can, you know, predict anything was sort of how the, the the commentary went. But what I never understood was, you know, how do you go from, say, a standard model to physics and then from physics to chemistry and then from chemistry to biology and then from biology to life? And there's these transitions that are always occurring between these different you know, massive areas, and it's not just one of scale. Um, you know, and and so when you're talking about this, what's you know kind of going on in my head is all right. So you you are almost. I mean, are you at this interface between physics and chemistry, and you're measuring what's going on there? And can you say something about that? Because I, I don't believe we can go from the standard model to biology. Okay. I'm I'm not willing to believe that yet, but it would be great to try to understand say how how we go from quantum mechanics to a more classical description like chemistry, which is I I realize it's a blend of quantum and, and classical mechanics, but Yeah, but these things are nothing new. Like people have been working on um quantum mechanics, molecular mechanics, uh, simulations of proteins. So if you're looking at how light energy is harvested in uh, photosynthesis, you can simulate and describe with a deep level of theory the the photon, the electronic excitations, and then the more global, large-scale motions of the rest of of the protein. Proteins would be hundreds, thousands of amino acids, which are each, you know, 10 to 20 atoms, right? So there's tens of thousands of atoms, if not hundreds of thousands. And you, those larger scale breathing motions and conformational rearrangements, those can be described somewhat classically, so you can coarse grain. And that's where the interesting part comes in at this multi-scale, this hierarchical level where it's really a human scientist brings a lot brings a lot from their past training to the table and what they've observed and their intuition and their domain knowledge and their knowledge about measuring devices. I was watching some uh, documentaries on the history of physics and it's true. Like in the, in the early days of the atom smashers of Ernst uh, Livermore, he, <laughs> you know, there's 
advertisements and speeches, I guess, to people that gave them a lot of money and, and where he would, you know, sort of, the, 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 the advert would end with, and one day we may be able to totally rearrange uh, the fundamental structure of matter based on our knowledge of, of the nucleus and, and, uh, and the atom in order to make gold from lead and realize the alchemy. I mean, you look at that now and you're like, well, that's, that's so naive and that's so, wow. I mean, this is so complicated how to have experimental control at that. You can blow it apart, but you can't just like isolate and be moving things around and holding them at certain energies. And, but at the same time, that dream it sort of is possible at the level of snapping together groups of atoms in small molecule medicinal chemistry and, uh, and chemical materials design. So yeah, there are these levels where you, you kind of, you want to know what can I measure and what experimental control do I have and what, what gets averaged out and what don't I know. And you might not be able to, exactly get at that and pin it down but you can write out equations for what is being lost in between those two levels and how they're not one-to-one but uh it's it's an inverse problem and that's where the probabilistic program that's where the probabilistic deep learning can come in and there's other many other approaches for inverse problems based on signal processing and 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 spectral theory and varsity now with probabilistic programming have you you know, when I was, I dabbled in it, I don't know how long ago, but there was these three languages, Dimple, Chimple, and Windbugs, and it was more of a, a, a Bayesian approach on the statistics side. Is that what you're doing? You're doing something different? Well, cause... bugs? Does bugs or does Stan mean anything to you? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like they're, they're I've never heard of uh, the three amigos you just mentioned, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm dating myself. So. <laughs> but uh, when people learn to code on Coursera or on YouTube or something, and they're print "Hello World" and they and they say x equals one, y equals two, x plus y equals oh, cool, it's it's working. I can do math. Well, think about when you're in probability class, when you're in statistics, and you you learn about the normal distribution or the Poisson distribution, the gamma distribution. And you have this little squiggle sign, X squiggle normal, and you sample from. And how do you actually, how does a computer actually do that? How does it sample from something? And if you want to have formal, uh, if you want to have compilers that are able to be aware of what's happening and, and, rearrange things based on what's dependent and independent on other things. You have to think about how you represent in a programming language what sampling is, what it means, the syntax, the semantics. And observe, when you observe something, you have to think about how do I actually like, have a computer do this, have a machine do this. And then once you have that in a probabilistic programming language, you can take advantage and instead of keeping in your head, in your mind, oh, this is X equals this. Oh, I'm, I'm treating this like that. And I do some work on the whiteboard and I do some math. And then, oh, I come up with this equation and I implement my equation and my program. And maybe you don't know how to do that math on the whiteboard. But if you write down your forward model and run it, 
and use it in inference, you can rely on the language to keep track internally, its own bookkeeping of what is dependent on what, of what happened before, what may happen after, what is fixed, what am I going to change, and start to do really interesting approaches to going from measurements to the modeling state, to our how we as human beings abstract and conceptualize information, form, Aristotelian Thomistic form, you could you know, possibly, uh, possibly think, right? Parametric forms that are interpretable, that can be shared and communicated with between dif- different communities that rely on different measurement devices, but that are aiming towards the same fundam- fundamental physical reality. Uh, uh, NMR spectrosco- spectroscopist, he deposits his data on the protein data bank with all his confirmations. And an X-ray crystallographer, she deposits her data in the same repository. And a, and a prior electron microscopist deposits their information. And they're all in that sharing an ontology of a latent space, of a hidden variable space. It's something you never exactly, directly, completely get at. You only, you know encounter and, and, and observe the measurements that have many things that have come together. When you talk about probabilistic programming with deep learning, you know, deep learning typically can have millions to billions of, of weights. <laughs> yeah. okay? And I think the latest GP3 model has, I thought I read it had like 256 billion weights on it. Uh, I, maybe I'm wrong. It was just some incredibly large number but when you do that probabilistic programming use deep learning do some or all the coefficients are do they are they no longer fixed values but more probability distributions no it's at least the way i'm well you can you could do that the, at least the, what i'm doing right now is that i'm the stochasticity the the probabilistic aspect comes in after the neural network, where the neural network produces distributional parameters, and then those go into probability distribution objects, those are sampled from. And at that standpoint, there's stochasticity. And that sampling has to do with our current estimate of what is the state of the microscope? I don't know, it's between here and here, so let's sample from that when we're doing some Monte Carlo-based inference, some variational approaches in deep learning, variational autoencoders that sample from it. But the neural network itself is doing deterministic-based gradient uh, updates. And so there's no changes to actually how the, the, the deep net is built from a, any other kind of process, right? So even, even as you, because just very simple conceptually, you know, a deep net is really layers of neural networks and the input to one neural network from a first initial one or the one before it, there's no probability distribution or, 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 or any kind of a probabilistic, probabilistic thinking in that it just gets built in, in the traditional kind of back propagation manner. It's really the output that then informs um, going forward? Well, you can have architectures that have bottlenecks where there's stochastic steps between them. You can have like composition between deterministic and stochastic computations. 
and like something like a variational autoencoder would be a, a simple example. You have a deep net encoder, then uh, some variation distribution you sample from, and then the output of that goes through a deep decoder. You can also compose those uh, to, to happen in multiple steps to have be predicting multiply diff, multiple different things. Or you can you know, not have something be a deep neural network and have it be physics equations. And that the whole kind of area, yeah, so being able to know how to take derivatives and do calculus in those complicated setups with deterministic and stochastic computations, how to do the chain rule, sometimes you have to take care. And how to automate a computer to do the chain rule, sometimes you have to take care. And a lot of the computer science notation and stuff getting discussed at computer science conferences like like NeurIPS is about, um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on right now in that space. So I'm, I'm really happy to be there. I'm, I'm trying to learn as much as I can, cobble together uh, from, from people's textbooks on their shelves and conversations and uh, YouTube videos, a undergraduate education in CS I never had, and take challenging courses. I don't know anything about probabilistic programming at this time last year. I took a great course taught by Frank Wood, who's a world expert, and tried really hard and studied yeah, it's, and studied. That's and studied. Yeah, it's a fascinating area for sure. Um, how does this help you understand more complex systems? Because I know we had talked about that, you know, earlier um, over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, people throw the words complex systems out there. I'm not quite sure a lot of times what they're referring to, but... Um, how does this approach then help you understand complexity? Because, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, going back to this, going from physics, standard model to physics, physics, chemistry, and so on, you know, there's another approach using cellular automata to try to understand more complex features, say, in hydrodynamics, right? Where you have fluids and you have flows made up of molecules, but you really don't look at you know, at a molecular level like you do. Yeah. Do you think that what you're doing can help inform that? Complexity is so cool. I mean, Wikipedia yeah, calls com complexity characterizes the behavior of a system or model whose components interact in multiple ways and follow local rules leading to nonlinearity, randomness, collective dynamics, hierarchy, emergence. And I think what I'm doing, what I'm aiming towards what I'd like to do, you know, in the years ahead is focus on this question of the multi-scale. You know, how do you go from that scale of what's happening? And this is like multiple scales in a single protein, <laughs> which itself is this kind of, you know, never mind what's happening. And you could also say protein complexes, never mind what's happening in a whole organelle or a whole cell. That's, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, I'm 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 one small drop in the bucket, and you can only have cocktail conversations about that. Never, I'll never publish about that probably. And uh, it's to capture, you know, the local rules are like these. I think, you know, you could I would put forward are these uh, equations governing specifics of the component of the microscope and how damage might work, uh, and what are the sort of 
boundaries of my system. I can imagine little dashed lines around that say, you know, this is system, that's surroundings. This at this energy scale, at this time scale, has a lot of uh, kind of. I can treat it as an object and 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 hold that some things are constant over it and it's independent from other things. So, for instance, you could. I was just having a conversation with some people from Toronto yesterday, and maybe you could say a protein is a collection of of pieces that are locally rotating in translation, independent from each other. And then if you want to make some statements about how, uh, in a different mathematical space, how those components behave and their, and their statistics when there's noise, you have a Fourier operator that's linear, and then uh, you'll be able to make some statements if they're rotating and translating to certain, in, in certain bounds, the overall effect on, on the whole measurement. And you know, the dream is to be able to combine and is to be able to jump in between these different levels of local areas around active sites and large areas of the whole kind of the whole object and, and how it is at, at lower scales. And if you have knowledge and are improving knowledge about one scale in one area, that informs the other area in a principled way. And you can, in your algorithm, be going in between these different levels hierarchically. Refining estimates here, going to this high level here, going down to that small level there. And from different measurements, from different patches of the acquired image of the same, that are pictures of the same object from different orientations, you could learn something about one thing and use it for, you know, that'll tell you things about other objects. You'll see them from, you'll get new information from other measurements. So even a single protein dancing around is really complex. That's and and that little protein might be the spike protein. Where you're wondering, is this new mutation on variant something something? Is it is it close far from where we've developed some vaccines? Is it possible for you to to do a kind of an in situ uh, interpretation of that? In other words, you see that is are you does your work or go toward being able to identify that and what it is? Some people are working on. Some people are working on in, in situ cell single particle cryoelectron microscopy, where instead of doing a bunch of biochemistry and purifying proteins, you know, made from from a cell factory that spit out them out into an aqueous environment that is no longer biology but chemistry. Some people are working on freezing cells and then making a thin lamella, thin little wedge of your and looking at the membrane proteins sitting in the their native environment of an organelle and seeing how they're what they're doing, how they're hanging out. There's not going to be billions and billions of them necessarily, but they're they're in a higher, you know, they're they're in a living system, they're in that higher context with other things around. Everything is jam-packed, crowded, everything's touching everything else. You're you're sort of you, you sort of scratch your head and you think, does it even make sense to call this like a thing and that another thing when they're so close and they're communicating so much information with each other. And it's quite humbling, you know, the, the human, the human subjective side of how we're labeling things and making our own internal ontologies. And then those get refined. I, 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 I when, you, when you say, when you talk about that, how, you know, so many cells, which are 
in and of themselves complex systems, you know, and other entities, how they work together, communicate. Uh, you know, I, it, it uh, you know, I wonder whether or not that's where math starts to desert us, right? Where physical laws start to desert us. And, and it's, it's more of a, um, I don't say a law of averaging, like when you go from statistical mechanics to thermodynamics, but it just seems like the transition from understanding a single entity or cell or a protein, that there's a whole nother level of, you made an additional transition when you suddenly put these things together. Uh, I don't want to say emergent properties. I'm, I don't know if I want to go down that path, but it's almost like, they, they, something else happens with them too, to, with the interactions that turns on things inside them that weren't clear before or weren't obvious. Uh, I, so, you know, I, I, you know, I think a lot of things, I'm not sure how much of it is, is, is stupid or correct, but, I, you know, I, it just seems like in reading stuff and listening to you talk, you know, we encounter these transitions that that kind of render the previous piece of, say, physics or chemistry um, inadequate to help us understand. Yeah, sort of the next one idea level. that comes. Yeah, I, I really sympathize with what you're saying. One one conversation with this, what's his name there? He's at Vanderbilt, and he's he's sort of engineering, bioengineering. Uh, lab on a chip kind of stuff. And he's got some nice reviews, John Wilkson or something. Um, he's got some nice reviews on the hierarchy of scales all the way up to the organism, like prosthetic uh, medical device level, all the way down to molecular level. And he told me one time, he's like, you can, it's very difficult to do multiscale modeling when you have high pass filters in between those levels. So if you have some noise at a lower level, and then as you transition to that higher level, there's a high-pass filter. All the, what will get amplified is all this noise. And so good luck, you know, <laughs> going from your state of knowledge about the lower level to, to make conclusions about a higher level. You have to be, it's like a bottle, it's like a Russian grandma doll of chaos, chaotic transitions between as you open the, babushka and see the little mini babushka and the mini mini babushka inside so that image i think uh, there's some good intuition in that image there of being, mm, how, how really am i envisioning these things and when when i was in taking life science courses cell biology and third year biochemistry and you have this white textbook page and you have these kind of almost like emoji level of detail organelles and uh and then what's in my mind right how much have i really been close to reality and and even when we look at output from light microscopes fluorescent microscopes electron microscopes different spectroscopy methods um sequencing and mass spectroscopy spectroscopy all these different kind of techniques then someone invents a new measurement device and, oh, there's a whole other layer of complexity and there's a whole other thing going on. In the past 10 years, there has been a greater realization of the importance of uh, liquid organelles and little droplets inside of a cell. 
or membraneless organelles and and uh and people have come up with ways to get at that experimentally where are the where are the pictures of those in your cell biology textbooks yeah uh, RNA, protein, yeah granules and things like that yeah it's just very humbling it is it is it's the more you work on it and you know people spend their lives working on one little piece of a cell um regardless of what the cell is and and it's just how these things interact they form they evolve over time they interact it's 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 humbling because it it almost tells you that you know we could never really understand you know fully a fully featured model or come up with a fully featured model that that meaningfully replicates that kind of behavior and I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, I know that's what they try to do with, with cellular automata, but I think that that's... Well, I look forward to hearing when, when if you ever host Stephen Wolfram and what he's doing with yeah computational physics and all this stuff. <laughs> I, you know, I, I read his first book. He came out with was in the 80s, A New Kind of Science. And, you know, I've kind of kept up with it over time. I'm still not convinced... It's a new kind of science, but it is it is an approach. And I think it's a healthy, as I'm going deeper into the history of the digital, first digital computers and the computer history museum, I visited uh, the one in Palo Alto when I went through there this this past spring and the, the Institute for Advanced Studies. There's even work, great work done up in University of Toronto in Canada. And there was like this cultural shift. There was the old school calculus style pure math style people and then there was like these someone like johnny von neumann he just in one lifetime sort of epitomizes the different worlds and a lot of people where they were yeah they were building was thinking stuff in his mind and then they were making it happen in reality with a bunch of vacuum tubes and it wasn't it was happening at this pure math uh Ivory Tower of the Institute for Advanced Studies. And, and I think those worlds never really, there was a big discontinuity in the way physics before World War II was done and the style and the aesthetics and kind of after. And in my own physics education, I mean, now I feel like I missed out so much. Should have had way more applied math and numerical linear algebra and transport theory. And there's great stuff happening in those areas. And, and it really, a lot of that stuff came out of economics, Nobel Prizes in economics, and transport and resource allocation and, and uh, I don't know, finance and things like that. And then once it's there, you can bring that back in and, and use it to model. Right. It's also interesting. I mean, some of those very, very early models, I mean, they're still relevant. You know, early on, the Department of Defense uh, built a, a computer model. It was one of the first applications of Fortran to simulate a nuclear explosion over Washington, D.C. And it was, it was a very complex thing. thing. only simulated it. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, but it was a very complex uh, program. Took a number of years to build, and they built that on Fortran. Well, it turns out that that program is, is at the core of a number of different scheduling systems nowadays. And it's the same code that they run because it would cost billions of dollars to 
update it, you know, from Fortran. And one of its uses is to schedule pilots and, you know, flight crews, pilots and flight attendants for uh, their monthly flights, right? They figure out where all the 15,000 flight attendants, 15,000 pilots and mechanics, how they all get scheduled for their flights every month. And at the core of it is this Fortran program. They still run. And it's, it's, you know, there's still a lot of companies that use models and things built in the 60s, 70s, because they have such, such wide breadth of use, but there's no business case to replace them. Yeah. I find all of these, I mean, this whole space very inspiring. Like I, I never feel, no longer do I feel kind of like turned off or threatened or sort of it's somehow ugly and elegant. It, because I feel like I bring something to the table as a human being. My mind and its capacity, like Aristotle wrote about this in De Anima, my mind's capacity to be everything. Yeah, I can always I can always be striving to go to one, a higher level of abstraction, and and go higher and go lower. The other last month, I had to you know delve into all this numerical stability issues, and there was some distribution, a directional distribution about. Uh, things are rotated and how they loop around in 3D space. And, and then I had to look up error function. I was getting log of a negative number. And then, oh, what the heck? Integrating a Gaussian. Oh, the, law, the error function. And then it was like error function asymptotes really, really quickly. It, it, it goes to, you know, and, and depending on how far out you are, and I was following, okay, through PyTorch and this and goes back to SciPy, which goes back to these Fortran kernels from scientific computing, like who knows how many decades ago. And all it was was like this piecewise Taylor expansion with like seven terms, seven polynomial terms. And if you're this far out, you know, uh, you use these, uh, these polynomial pieces. And if you're a little further out the next interval, you use that one. It was just a, a huge file of if, if else, if else, if else, next Taylor expansion, next Taylor expansion, about here, about there, about, you know, the next one over, plus two, plus two more. And it does a job. It's amazing how prevalent Taylor series expansion is in, in software. I, you know, when, when I was in, um, uh, I actually have a master's in computer science, but I don't officially have it because of a bunch of knuckleheaded bureaucrats, but I won't go there. Um, it was just so stupid. I gave up after 10 years trying to convince them I really did graduate. And my professors said, yeah, he graduated, he graduated. And the bureaucrats, well, you, you still don't have this piece of paper to be signed. You know, it's like, forget it. So, but one of the things I did was I looked at the early basic and Fortran compilers that were on the PCs in the early 80s. And we were having all kinds of problems. And what I tracked it down to was that the way they calculated sines and cosines and tangents and things was extremely inaccurate. Uh, they were maybe correct to one digit. And it was because, <laughs> and, and so when they disassembled it, you know, you, you could, at the time you can disassemble into assembly language code. Turns out they were just using the Taylor series expansion for sines and cosine and tangent, which besides being not very stable is highly inaccurate. You actually have to use rational functions, which are the ratios of two polynomials, to to, to do that. And uh, but so when you use rational functions, you get a lot of precision on your on your elementary functions in the software. 
And there was another case where the um, random number generators on the IBM mainframes were uh, that were being used at the time for a number of uh, nuclear physics calculations and things uh, weren't quite random, weren't random enough, I should say, <laughs> and changed some results. Uh, it, was, it was it was very interesting. Um, so, I, you know, I, but the Taylor series expansion, you know, you learn it in high school calculus. It's amazing how prevalent that stuff is. It's, it's so it's very useful. It's very it easy. It generalizes. You use it with complex numbers. You use it with vectors, matrices, multidimensional. Yeah. But you're beyond that, though, right? <laughs> You never get there. Yeah, you never get beyond the Taylor expansions. All right. Well, that's good. I'm, that was a great overview of your research. It's 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 fascinating. I'm sure we'll talk about you it again in the future. If you ask any more questions about particle physics, I I, I just might have to. Uh, you know, you got me. You've I've been I've been discovered. I'm I'm an imposter. You've unearthed me. <laughs> Well, we could do that next time. Well, we could delve into part of it because I got a lot of questions no, here. No, please, no. <laughs> Although I am interested in silicon-based detectors, and that's a lot of known from a kind of particle. All right. Well, so, yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. But yeah, yeah, we do. So, and we kind of, we've talked about kind of how this fits in the overall major question. Really, it's really, how do you, how do you understand something's alive? And there's no good definition of of what it means for something to be alive. You said, you know, that was sort of your ultimate goal was to understand what makes a, a living thing alive. But is there a good definition to that? Well, you know, that phrase itself comes from uh, Robert Rosen. He's got some essays uh, concerning life itself and a book before that and some speculative stuff. He was like a biophysicist, but he was also, as all... <laughs> Usually, as all good philosophers are, he he started out in uh, in science. He became very much interested in, in in more speculative questions in his later years, I think. And uh, in his writing, um, he's really he's wondering if that's even like a valid question, if it's too ambitious, and he sort of goes for it and says, you know, let's not just give up and make lists of stuff. Lists of descriptions of, oh, a living thing has to do A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, E, F. Let's really try to get at, you know, the essence of, of what makes a living thing alive. What is life? And the road he goes down is very much one filled with math notation and Turing machines and computability. And uh, I'm really enjoying that read. It's quite, um, you know, you have to have your, your pencil in the margin and maybe even a, some graph paper. To, to fiddle around with, uh, he sounds like a materialist. I don't know. I mean, I think he ta he talks about causality. He talks about Aristotle. He talks about how living things aren't machines. I'd agree with he's him. Writing, there. He, he's writing. Yeah, my my jury is still sort of out on exactly what I think of his work, but I, I've really liked what I've read so far because he's he's in, he's he's interested in doing philosophy of nature and not just doing empirical science and not just doing theory. He's really trying to bring it up into what does it physically mean and connect it with common sense and our own experience. But at the same time, holding on to like all of his training, everything he knows from his specialized studies. So uh, I defer to Robert Rosen for the definition of life. <laughs> well, I, I guess I would, you know, 
it's not so much life, I guess, is I like the way you said it, you know, what makes a living thing alive and you have to define living, you have to define thing, and then you have to define alive and then integrate all three. And I, I wouldn't presume to even attempt to do that, but, um, and then differentiate it between different genus, you know, plants, animals, so on. Um, Rosen, Rosen built a lot, like he built on, he was, he was writing about, he was sort of criticizing reductionism that ignored the complexity of organisms. He was, he defined complex system as any system that cannot be fully understood by reducing it to its parts. And he tried to make that statement tight with some notation, with some examples, with, with a ch chapters about it and looking at it different angles and connecting to causality. So there's some really good stuff there. My, my, friend, my friend called Robert Rosen, a, you know, that he's, he's someone who was really into cybernetics. I, if that's what cybernetics is, then, then I'd like to learn a bit more about cybernetics. He never uses that word in his whole book. But that's an interesting definition of a complex system is, is one that can't be reduced down to its con constituent parts and understood. Um, that's a very intriguing way of, of looking at it. He's got these sort of diagrams that remind me so much of cause. I think they are causal diagrams. And they connect then, if they are, then they would connect with what Judy of Pearl has got the Turing Award for and, and others are building on causal inference. And, and uh, people are continuing on Rosen's work. But does, that explain, other yeah. but does that explain how a complex system can evolve with time? I mean, because they're not deterministic, right? How does he work that out? We have to start a reading group. Okay. All right. I invite you, I invite you to my Robert Rosen reading group. <laughs> I'll tell you what page I'm on. I'm still trying to work my way through a couple books. And uh, one Michael Hanby's book, uh, No God, No Science, That's that has to be one of the most challenging books I've ever read. I mean, I thought my... my quantum field theory book was was brutal but uh this one is all philosophy and you know i'm not i've just been studying it in the last few years that you know we could have a reading group just on that one too so when i i'm, I'm doing some i'm doing i'm reading that book because i'm going deeper into some ideas of causal inference and i want to connect that with with biology and modeling and i'm, I'm running some stuff up so maybe i'll send it your way and you can you can tell me what sure. you think and if it's hogwash or not and pick it apart I always have an open mind so all right look we covered your your science pretty well here that's pretty exciting stuff i'm i'm happy for you and be looking forward to talking with you about your you know what you end up with um so let's talk about your faith i know when we first spoke you know, you had talked about how you're a convert. So maybe walk us through that. Okay, there I am. I'm in grade 11. I'm on the West Coast. I'm, I'm having a great time. Just moved out from Winnipeg, Manitoba, where there's about one weekend in the summer where it's not snowing, where you can maybe have a barbecue. And uh, I love it. You know, I go down to the skate park every day. I'm with my friends, going to a new school. And, uh, and then I encounter this powerful image and person on the TV 
of John Paul II. So it's 2004 in the spring. No, 2005. Five. And, yeah. and, he's, and he's, he's just passed. And they're showing footage of like when he was in Mexico in the 70s when he's young, strong, um, in Denver, Colorado. Uh, you know, John Paul II, the, the kind of a superstar pope. And, and, uh, but when I actually like listened to what he was saying, he was such a great orator. I would just give me goosebumps. And I, I had been, you know, curious about religion, interested in religion. I'd always been sort of, uh, my parents had always given me hints and nudges and were concerned about any, it was sort of the taboo topic in our, in our family where, you know, it was just, it just didn't exist. It was just like sort of censored from existence. And, um, and John Paul II just blew that all up and blasted through that and reached right into my heart. And there was just so much grace. I just was filled with motivation to, to do something about it and, and read and get to the bottom and think and ask and talk. And because what he was saying, my heart was saying, yes, yes, this is, this is great. This is the good stuff. This is fantastic. Friendship and, and love and family and, and truth and, communion with you know god as as the person of jesus christ wow i want <laughs> i want to drink from this cool calm stream i'm never it's never satiating my thirst and that's just what i did and uh there was it was like the early days of catholic podcasts like the very first people the catholic cast and and um star quest podcast network and uh rosary army and all these things and um and these people seem really happy and i I was basically able to find out in a weekend maybe a a month so much more that that like no no one around me could i realized that like everyone around me who'd ever weighed in on religious matters was really stuck in a pretty immature adolescence adolescent rebellion that they had never didn't have any intellectual depth i mean there are some people that (laughs) priests who had lost their vocation and were super bitter about the church that okay those guys had uh actually did have quite a bit of depth and wounds so so there i was i was in grade 11 and then now i was in grade 12 and then now it was okay it's i'm ready to knock walk on down and knock on 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 the cathedral door and in victoria British Columbia and the bells. I still remember walking in there and the whole thing, how the floor creaked, how it smelt. Everyone sitting down, um, the picture of divine mercy, the, all of the architecture, all the imagery. Uh, my, my dad's uh, kind of uh, inquiring, disapproving questions when I got back. Oh, where'd you go? Oh, I, I, I went to church. Oh, yeah? Hmm. Uh, where? Oh, well, downtown. Oh, and what church? Um, St. Andrews. Oh, yeah. And what kind of church is that? Uh, the c- c- Catholic church? Oh, mm. so-and-so is not going to like that. And, you know, people in our family that <laughs> were, were, you know, have, uh, have serious wounds. They need a lot of prayer. So, um, so yeah, I was in grade 12 and I, I went back to my career personal planning course and talked with my my you know, my, my uh, 
person across me, oh, what did you do this last weekend? Oh, yeah, you went down to the church. Oh, yeah, well, tell me more about it. Yeah, I think I might become Catholic, right? And it was just a big shock to, to the people around me and who I seemed to get along with. It was just like, it was, I mean, it would have seemed a shock to me, you know, in, in I guess the, the day before Divine Mercy Sunday, 2005, before John Paul had passed. And um, yeah, and then I actually wasn't, I started going to RCAA. I met really good Catholics there, Harrison Eyre, um, David Hogman, Father John Lashik, and people who I continue to pray for and, and receive so much from. And, um, and then I, I went to Vancouver the, after grade 12. I wasn't, wasn't ready to be baptized. I thought, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like, you know, if I wasn't going to do this, I ha- like, it has to be forever, for real. Uh, you know, with, 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 uh, and holding nothing back. And I was just shaky, a bit shaky and I didn't jump. And, um, you know, maybe sometimes people get a bit too much pressure to be baptized right that year where they need a bit more faith formation and support and, and, and building up a good prayer life and, and they can be baptized the next year. Maybe, maybe people are worried that they'll disappear and better, better now than, than never. But I went to Vancouver, and, uh, and this is eventually where I was baptized in uh, April 7th, 2007. During Easter? Easter Vigil. Were there any authors during that time, during your faith formation, that were kind of seminal in your, your, your growth in faith? Well, the most seminal author, well, it's, I would say, <laughs> my two patron saints, my baptismal patron saint, Don the Apostle, which is the parish where I was baptized. And also Saint Jose Maria Escriva, who who lived very recently. There's videos about him, and he's my confirmation saint, and he's just a huge inspiration um, to how to live as a Christian in the middle of the world. And the people that were helping me out in those early days, they were they were at UBC, they were teachers, they were engineers, they were technical guys, and 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 they didn't just like give me classes, and they taught me to pray by praying with me. They took me to visit the sick and do the works of charity and live the faith. I owe so much to them. There's also apolog- apolog- uh, apologists, you know, people who had uh, unearthed every stone. And Peter Crafe's, you know, writings are great. And C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. I remember reading Everlasting Man, and that just really hit home for me. That was one of the very early books I read. And, um, oh, who's that guy? Frank Sheed. I love Frank Sheed's books. Yeah, yeah. They're great. So, was it a? Uh, did your faith just sort of grow with time in a linear fashion, or was there ups and downs to it, and a few oh, steps forward, always, yeah. a couple steps back? There's yeah. always, you know, the image. One of the image that Saint Jose Maria gave was that you're sort of you always stay on the path. It's about staying on the path, and you can run, and you can walk, and you can crawl, and you can bicycle, and you can skip. But you've got to stay on the path, right? So you kind of, some people go, let's, when I'm biking home sometimes and there's a big wide open street, I look behind me, oh, there's no car. And I'll do this big kind of to either side, right? So sometimes, yeah, sometimes it feels like I'm not, uh, you know, going in a complete straight direct line and, and there's, you know, some meandering here and then swinging over there. And, and, uh, and there's always a bit of that, but always to, to stay on the path. I think that's, that's key. Everyone grows it because you can't grow in everything at the same time. You go through different things and then you, 
and then you move and then there's different people and you get use and there's this constant interplay between the human virtues and the supernatural virtues and things being consolidated uh, uh, and then grace touching you and reaching into you and Sometimes, you know, there's been moments in my life, more than one, where I felt like my idea, my own being of reason of who, how I conceptualize God has just been shattered, just been smashed to a million pieces because that's not the true living God. That was my, too much of my own uh, limitations and bad past experiences. And maybe other people who have, who have wounded me have gotten into that and it just blew up. That's not, that's not God, right? God is, God is more loving. God is more merciful. God is more challenging. God is more demanding. Um, God is just more good. He's more desirable. You know, I like what you said about prayer. You know, one of the failings, I think, of the church was, was I saw it in my, my kids' uh, faith formation classes. They just never taught them how to pray. And, but they also never taught them how to apply prayer, meaning, you know, to your point about going to visit the sick and in hospitals and in those who are uh, suffering in some way and praying with them. It's not only teaches you how to pray, but why and the kind of the best ways to pray that in, in, I think a lot of that I call the empirical side of, of learning how to pray is missing. Uh, and, and, and I, I, I think it's been missing for a long time is certainly in, in faith formations that I've seen and I've had to, on my own, you know, fix that. But I like the way you put that. Yeah, praying, like, learning how to pray is not listening to a talk on how to pray. Right. It's like, uh, yeah, I want to know how to ride a bike. Well, let me, let me, okay, sit down. I'm going to, I'm going to go on the whiteboard. I'm going to talk. I'm going to show you a video. Well, no, that's not quite it, right? <laughs> There's no algorithm. <sighs> It's, it's an embodied thing. It's our whole being. It's reaching out, learning how to hold hands with God, learning how, how to communicate in more than words. Right. We can communicate in, in there's more to being human than heaven is not syllogisms. <laughs> heaven is not eternal syllogisms. That's one thing that my, one, of my, one of my friends and mentors, Leslie, told me many years ago. Heaven is not eternal syllogisms. <laughs> now, in that, up to this point, then, you know, you started in high school. What, what part of the Catholic doctrine has sort of been the most challenging for you to, to internalize? Well, I mean, I was really influenced in my, in my family and by my school division and, and community and stuff by a lot of, uh, you know, there, there wasn't a, a good place for boys, right? Too much of that sort of. Um, toxic side of, of feminism and long before the days of any of the really aggressive gender ide ideology stuff but there there was the seeds of that you know the it's not even it's not even relativism it's not it relativism is unlivable people are realizing that now it, it's more to do with like being not trusting of nature not knowing how to discern the natural law not thinking that this home is a welcoming place to be and uh, it has a place for me, and it's good that I'm here. Yeah, relativism, I also think of as a massive denial cult. They just seem to deny what you just said, you know, the beauty of nature, natural laws, and, and a more spiritual or, or mystical approach to it. It's just this massive denial that any of these are possible or could be part of 
of our reality? I think a lot of it comes from people just, it's not that, it's like you, it, it, there's the, you can have all these intellectual conversations and this and that, and there's resistance. And then, and then, and then it's like, but if you were having them after a weekend camping and out on the lake and enjoying it, you could have a totally different conversation. So it's like people have somehow not spent enough time in, in reality and are kind of, it's not, they're able to, like Anthony Ritzy in the Institute for Advanced Physics talks a lot about this in his physics and culture work, uh, just about how there's this big disconnect between how knowledge has been digested in our culture or it's not been digested, it's not really been, and, 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 um, and people can, can think some things, but it's actually really disconnected with, with, uh, with how they're living, with what they're choosing, and because they haven't actually thought it through, because, well, it's really hard to do. <laughs> yeah. Really hard to draw out from, uh, uh, you know, it's like that attitude that sometimes in, in, in physics uh, communities of the skeptic, the resistant, and, well, why should I assume this, and why is this true? And you kind of want to have that when you're doing, like, axiotype, axiomatized mathematics and be like, well, got to make sure I don't assume anything in this. I'm taking a proofs course right now, right? And when you're proving two sets and surjectivity and injectivity and, and if a cardinality is greater than other and different infinities, like you really, <laughs> you really have to carefully know like whatever, can I just assume uh, that I can decompose any integer into, into its primes or, or not? You know, what am I building on? What are my foundations? And there's that kind of, healthy pursuit of um of rigor but at the same time that can degenerate into like this unrealistic unlivable quest to um eat from the tree of good and evil and the tree of life and to have power over myself and everything and even god as if i can you know hold that in my hand hold hold him in my hand and intellectually hold him in my gaze and sort of have power over him it's not that's not it. That's not kind of, that's not faith. That's not living. That's not what leads to eternal life. So when we transition then to, you know, talked about your science a lot and your faith journey, bring them together around faith and reasons. I know that reason, uh, I know one of the things we talked about was, was miracles. and get a lot to say about that. Um, and I, the whole topic of miracles was always fascinating. fascinated a lot of people, uh, especially of how they occur, but you, you spend a lot of time thinking about it. I, I think everything we talked about, I got from Father Giuseppe Tenzilaniti, who's out of the um, Pontifical University for the Holy Cross in Rome. And I'm reading, well, I've done his book now. I just read it, coming out soon. And he's got this great, and I really agree with him. He's got this, uh, you know, his book is on the theology of credibility, of the faith's credibility, but in the age now that we are in of scientific reason. And miracles are, are just a fascinating area, often neglected, because the theologians pass the buck, the scientists pass the buck. <laughs> like, it's an interdisciplinary question, because if someone's a theologian, he might think, oh, well, I don't, I'm not a scientist. I don't know if that's scientifically possible or not. I don't know. Ask a scientist. Ask a doctor. And can tumors do that? Just disappear? And then um, a scientist can pass the buck and be like, well, you know, I, I know these things from my science and this and that, but don't ask me if it's a miracle. I don't, I don't know anything about God and I can't, I can't, you know, make that declaration. And, but actually, like, the theologian needs a scientist to be able to say, like, the relative uncertainty of things. Like, it's, it's a different thing when Peter drops the net 
and pulls out the catch of fish. Whoa, that's unexpected. Wow, what are that? It's a very different thing when Lazarus is stinking in the tomb and he gets up and he's, quick, get those bandages off him. (laughs) Unwind it out of his, you know, wind it up, demummify him. There's some irreversible processes or some things that are maybe highly unlikely, but strictly strictly speaking, probable. And, and then there's also, you know, and then what does the theologian bring? Well, there's also a lot more than just, just the kind of the raw um, dimension drained of any intentionality, any existential aspect, any, the, the, the miracle for Cardinal Newman, for John Henry Newman. There was this lady, I think she was in maybe the East Coast of the States, and she was she was pregnant with her baby there, and then there was this moment, and she had a great devotion to Cardinal Newman and had the image up in, in her house. And I don't know if she knew that there was problems before, but there was this moment where like, she was going to lose the baby and she herself was going to perish. She was at home and, and blood and blood and problems and you know, sort of the whatever tissue was damaged and, and whisking away to the hospital. And in the end, what happened? The miracle was a total restoration of what should happen in nature. It wasn't something just completely fantastical and arbitrary and things blipping in and out of existence like some weird special effects. It was that she could have her baby as it should be. So it was like it was, it was a miracle restoring, helping, going with nature, pointing to how the new creation will be, whether it be every tear will be wiped away. A lot of people have questions about when they're coming to the faith. A lot of scientists would have questions about miracles, right? And if other Catholic scientists can dialogue with them and, and show them at the one hand, you know, the, the preambles, the rationality, the distinctions, the theolo- theological categories, but at the same time not lose that and, and, and see grace and see um, where the whole thing's pointing and what God is really trying to reveal and draw us into relationship. And, and so we see grace as, um, we see God behind nature and grace as part of the same story. I think that'll help a lot of, a lot of scientists. But I'd like to get better at that myself. I've always had a problem with the laws of nature being suspended for a miracle. And I've always tended to think about miracles as instantiations of laws of nature that we, you know, haven't discovered yet, right? Um, I, I, as a scientist, I, I, I believe miracles follow laws of nature. So one, one way of thinking about it, I listened to a, a Catholic scientist some time ago. He, he said that the laws of physics can actually be violated on time scales less than the Planck time, 10 to the minus 34 seconds. And that's where, uh, God can intercede to create a miracle. I think the risk, I think the risk, I mean, this is, yeah, this is, uh, it's important to have these conversations, but I think the risk here is that we have to remember, and it's hard for, I think, exceptionally hard for scientists to remember the kind of radical, trans- transcendent nature of God, who God is, right? God is not a being among beings. We're not trying to show the great architect God, the wizard magician God. God can create something out of nothing. What law of nature is that? Ex nihilo creation. What law of nature? It's, it's like, it's not even, it's, it's not a set of all sets. It's, a, it's, it's like, it's, it's something else, something else going on. Um, well, we, no, 
it could be, right? But maybe not all miracles. So we have to think about what miracles in case by case, look at it from different angles. Also keep in mind the you know, transcendent nature of God um, in order to, we can call it all with one word, miracle. But there's, there's a lot of important distinctions and nuances we can get into and make. Right. Is it the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea? Is it the uh, miracle of the resurrection? And in the end, it's all God's story. It's all God's story. We're, and, you know, there's no need to divinize the laws of nature as if they are competing with God or something. They're his providence, right? He's the, he's the, he's the creator. And when he does, when something is, is striking, is unique, is, stands out for us, doesn't mean that it's, what is it, rather than emphasizing what it's against, what is, what is everything for? Everything is going forward and, and God's bringing together things in a way that's, you know, we'll never be able to totally understand and, and exhaust into final communion with him. And right. It's his story. Okay. So one of the things we, other things we talked about was, you know, is to be a missionary to scientists, right? I know that, you know, you're like myself, part of society, of Catholic scientists. I think you started the chapter at Vancouver. Well, yeah, we, we, I got together with some other members here and we all started up, uh, formally started up a chapter. I'm serving as the uh, president. We got some great board members. I'm looking for more, <laughs> Graduate students, yeah, I'm looking for some graduate students that want to chip in and be officers. And we had our gold mass, and yeah, we're um, we had a gold mass at Madison, and um, this one person's taking over the lead of of starting a chapter. Uh, I'm not quite sure what this uh, geographical size would be for the for the chapter, but it's you know we're doing one here as well, uh, and it's fun, and and and. You know, one of the things at that SCS meeting they were talking about was mentoring. I think you and I had talked about it before. You know, some of the mentoring ideas that came out of the SCS meeting about getting involved with the diocese, helping other, um, whether it's K through 12 science teachers or in Catholic schools or others as well. Is that part of your chapters, one of the things you do? Right now, we're not doing any of that. Um, I'd personally like to do some stuff in that space. Uh, we're focusing a lot, like primarily, a, you know, as a university chapter, we're, we're doing things around the university. At the same time, you could say part of the mission of a university is also public dissemination of knowledge and outreach. And so last year, we did a lot of stuff with discussion groups, and we worked through Chris Beglow's excellent textbook on faith, reason, and science theology at the cutting edge, by, published by Midwest Theological Forum. Highly recommended. Second edition. Is that a book for, I thought that that was a book for high school students. Oh, yeah. But you look at the professors here, graduate students here. They're just like, wow, this is fantastic. This is excellent. And, and you realize, oh, my gosh, like we got to step it up here. We got to have some rigor. We got to, you know, get into our theology and, and uh, study it and have some incentive. And No, you're right. That is a good place to start then. Yeah, I was just going to say, there's, then there's a social aspect of, um, that's another aspect of the Society of Catholic Scientists' mission, is to foster fraternity, right, and, 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 and belonging in, among Catholic scientists who are really looking for support. Uh, senior people want to give back and, and help out, uh, young junior trainees, and, and also 
have some no what's going on with you know faculty talking to other faculty. I was just having some uh, a meal with two uh, faculty members who are who are in SCS in a different city, and we started talking about um, some of the kind of ideological pressure and and uh, discrimination. Right, so this individual was basically um, told, well, because you're Catholic, there'll be a conflict of interest for your for your university administrative duties in this particular aspect. So we found a stand-in for you, and so because you're Catholic, this other person will be doing that portion of your job. Yeah, yeah, that's just as I like to say, galactic stupidity. But yeah, I, I, in and unfortunately, that that's what it's come to. You know, at least he's not being um, out and out told to leave, right? But uh, yeah, I've especially in Canada is is I think more challenging than the United States when it comes to some of these cultural issues and these intersections. It's coming. It's coming to the yeah, U.S. I know. I just I know. visited the one of the museums in Chicago and was looking at some of the displays. Uh, uh, this is on the topic of, like, Pope Francis just visited our country, and we had a lot of good, um, you know, for a penitential pilgrimage, and, and he's, you know, he didn't mince words and said he's sorry and pointed out, you know, past sins of, of some Christians and and you know, holding everyone to a higher standard. And so this got a lot of press, and there's been a formal Truth and Reconciliation Commission in our country, in Canada. But I think, I think a wave's coming like that in the U.S. Go down to the Fields Museum, Chicago, and read and go to the exhibit on Native Truths or something like that, Our Voices or something. It's all the same things. And if anything, it was <laughs> it's more, it's more brutal in the States because you had, you didn't have fantastic uh, Catholic missionaries. You didn't have uh, as much British rule of law in the wild, wild west. This is even worse in a lot of cases. More violent. And- I've always wondered if at some point in my Catholic life I'll end up in jail because I'm Catholic for doing something. And, and I, 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 I worry about that more for my kids than for myself. But yeah, you can see that coming. It's a it's a brutal perspective, and and but you know we we all, you know every not so much every generation, but there is this this challenge to Catholicism and to believers. You know where are you going to come down on you know when when you see it in other countries, right? Where, for example, Nigeria, uh, priests being kidnapped and killed. You know, if it comes like that here, even a a more less violent thing, would we still have the the wherewithal to stand up for our faith? And yeah, it's yeah. it's it's not an easy thing to to talk or think about, right? In terms of losing your your jobs or losing your your, especially not to diverge too much, but one of the things you know I teach 
one of the things I teach is uh, IT is around digital currencies. One of the things I tell my students is digital currencies have a wonderful ability to control your behaviors because the government can control how you spend your money, where you spend it, and how much. And there's a lot of concern amongst people like myself about the authoritarian nature of a digital uh, currencies that just go, you know, for example, if I, if I give money to the church, it's just going to have to be in rumpled $20 bills to make sure that they don't know I'm giving them. <laughs> well, in Canada, I mean, we had this high profile thing that went to the international press about the Emergencies Act and about uh, information that, that was, this is the truckers convoy protest and then information about people who had donated through a GoFundMe campaign and then bank accounts being frozen. And um, yeah, so maybe next time there's a protest, people will donate and rumpled. I actually know people that hand-delivered bags of money. Yeah, yeah. For that trucker's convoy thing. And uh, I watched very, I was very edified when our the Canadian Senate weighed in on the war, on the, not on the War Measures Act anymore, on the Emergencies Act, and said, where's the emergency? What's happening? And it was clear they're going to vote it down. And so the the you know of course you have to turn on an emergency. You have to be able to turn on immediately. You can't wait right. for something in case there's an emergency. But then it had to be turned off, or they were going to vote it off. And so right. in order to I think in order to save face, then the government said, okay, it's over, off. And it was there for like four days. But people were like, I saw videos. I, my friends were there. They were beaten on. They were yeah, it was. I saw it was. So, and as, and as tough as it is, when people get bullied, when people get um, shamed, when, you know, churches are burned and there's not strong reactions against, which happened in, in Canada recently. I, th- I like to think about the early Christians. You know, they banded together. Their persecution was a lot worse. Yes. They were thrown to wild animals and ripped from limb to limb. But then, apparently... You know, when people realized after the fact that, you know what, I think the one who had started that fire was actually Nero himself. And they saw how the Christians uh, died in such uh, odor of sanctity that was, uh, their, their, their martyrdom was seeds of our church. And we have an, so we have an opportunity, right, when, when we're um, treated unjustly to let our faith shine and, and be salt and light. So let's, I pray for the courage when that, if and when that moment comes. So do I. Uh, now, you've written about kind of intersection of faith and reason, haven't you? Yes, I uh, have gotten some articles in Scienza uh, Fides, uh, which is out of uh, Poland and Spain. It's a great publication. It's not that old. It's uh, started up in the past few years. I've written some review essays, an article, and uh, I got some projects on the go right now. But uh, yeah, I've written uh, some stuff on philosophy of nature. And uh, when I was at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto for, for medical biophysics research, I was thinking a lot about all this, all the different scales, right? The molecular scale, all these hallmarks of cancer. And I wanted to go all the way up to beyond the bench to the bedside. My mom was, we were, I was on call, a lot of calls with her because she had an issue with uh, thyroid cancer and or th- it, luckily, it wasn't cancer, but a th- tumor in her thyroid and 
how how to connect those worlds of uh, the kind of academic research and to how should I really feel about nature and my my relationship with people and medical humanities. So that's a article I am very I'm very uh, put a lot of my heart into. I think it's called something like waking up from transhumanist dreams. <laughs> right? Because what is the goal of cancer research? Is it to cure death? Is it constantly to battle away uh, the kind of nature? Well, then, then we'll always be losers. We always feel frustrated. But what's another way where I'm not escaping away from technology, but I'm living my image of God, living on my vocation, being a scientist, being a good Catholic scientist, being a human being. I had lots of lunch chit chats with people about those themes, put a lot of that in there. So the last topic, you know, I always, you know, give my guests the ability to talk about anything they want to talk about. And um, I think you said there was a book you'd been reading recently you wanted to, to discuss. Oh, really? I wanted to talk more about the wave function and uh, <laughs> Schrodinger's cat and and uh, wave the wave packet of the electron and the and the vacuum column. Oh no, no we we talked about that for a whole hour today. So maybe that's enough. <laughs> no, no, you're right. The, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say I, I, I'm having a, a talk with a mathematician, and I'm I'm really anxious to talk to him about uh, Wigner's article on the on, on the beauty of mathematics and and why it should be so useful. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Okay, good. I did I send you what I wrote on on the beauty and awe of uh, yes, you did awe and wonder, and then I yes. like how biology, biological beauty, and yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. enjoy I'll, that conversation. I'm, I'm gonna use actually. I'm using I'm using your article when I my prep for that. Um, but go ahead. You, yeah, so there's this other book I've been reading that I kind of, I sent you something about it like a day ago or something. So <laughs> Yeah, I haven't been able to read the book, yeah. But it's, uh, a friend gave it to me that I work with, uh, my buddy Artem, and it's called, oh, it's got a famous title because it's building on Heidegger's. It's called um, The Question of Technology in China. Right? So Heidegger had this great monograph, The Question on the Question of Technology. And this Hong Kong scholar, Yuk Hui, who is a big, uh, who's very familiar with Heidegger's work and, and uh, really influenced by German philosophy, he wanted to examine the question of technology in China. And I learned a lot in that book. I got like maybe 20 pages left or something. Like, it's like 320 pages. I learned a lot about ancient Chinese culture and philosophy and like, at deep-seated attitudes, metaphysical attitudes, and how they're different from the West. In particular, the Cartesian West that Yukui is showing has sort of, that's, that's what happened with China. So there was China, got humiliated in the Opium Wars, and it said, well, overcome the West by becoming the West. We'll become, we'll overcome, you know, we'll... we'll modernize and have all this technology and be able to overcome the West by westernization. And now it's sort of what's going on in China is very much stuck in this age of failure or limitation of modernity of technology, progress, unlimited uh, potential resources, 
you started off in caves and then you became farmers and then there was democracy and now we lead the way to the future with the Communist Party of China. And but what's gonna what's what's happening with the Anthropocene? What's happening with it's it's really out of touch with some of the good parts of the postmodern critique. And what Yukui wants to do is not return to some sort of naive desert of where there's no technology, some sort of James Cameron avatar. And he doesn't want to live in a kind of, you know, with the, with the kind of myth of modernity, but tap into ideas like from Taoism and, and think about, well, why, what, why is it that it was so difficult for, and it just didn't happen, where, where there wasn't science didn't develop in China, where technology, I mean, there was craftsmanship and tech, tech, what he calls techniques that came out of China, very good stuff, right? But that there, there wasn't axiomatization of geometry in China. There wasn't uh, even the same concep- conception of what time is, time, creation, time now, in state of journeying, leading us towards the last day. There wasn't that concept, right? And so how is it that Chinese culture isn't just going to be something for cultural tourism or uh, that's going to be a museum so it's still going to inform and influence and uh, he he's he writes about how what happened in japan with the kyoto school and how the kyoto school was like japan one way japan was responding to westernization and, and integrating technology and it devolved sort of into imperialism and bombing of pearl harbor and Total war, and so you know it's, this. Uh, it's a big uh, cautionary tale for China to avoid. So it's a it's an interesting uh, book. It's quite continental in, in the philosophy it draws on. He's really unaware, I think, of a lot of the. I mean, there's many Western traditions of philosophy and Cartesian, just all of it, right? There's the whole medieval tradition, the Catholic intellectual tradition. So I think a lot of the good stuff I like in what I'm seeing, uh, it has a lot in common actually with Western tradition, just a deeper Western tradition before the Cartesian break. So does he have some sort of a vision for how they should be conducting or, or positioning themselves to, to take advantage of things learned previous? Or, or I guess what I'm struggling with was, is, is what is his, his future state that he would like to see happen? Or does he have one? Well, he, there's, he has, you know, 20 pages left to do it, and it, uh, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but he's, this isn't his only book. He's got a newer one called Art and Cosmotechnics. It's, it's something about, I think, if I was to sit down with him and have a coffee with him, uh, it's something about having, you know, Technology and nature not seem so at odds with each other, and not technology not alienating us so much, but at the same time uh, living in in a world surrounded and permeated through with with uh, you know human human artifact. So to me, technology is is the religion, and and AI is you know one key enabler of that. Does he see? How does he position technology then in terms of belief systems and and how it sh- how we should relate to it versus sort of how we do now, where it's a a massive set of a massive enabling tools to help us live better, but also has some really significant downsides to it? 
what, he, he, he hasn't explicitly said it, but what I, where I hope he's going, or I think he'll go in his career, is tapping into these Taoist ideas of, you know, the, the logic of heaven, the logic of earth, like living that mor- morale in, 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 you know, some aspects of ancient Chinese culture, morality is really not a separate thing. And it doesn't come from out of a legalistic framework. There's not like a clear creator God who makes something that you could perhaps misunderstand as being arbitrary, but that morality and cosmology, it's all intertwined because you're looking for the logic of things. You're trying to discern the natural law, the way things are. How is it? Where's my place in this? How are things flowing? How do I understand my own self, my own body, my own family dynamics? These are really healthy questions to have instead of, instead of uh, seeing everything as just raw stuff that I can recombine like little Lego blocks at will. Because, because why? Because nothing, no reason. Where I think a lot of the, in the West, we've got ourselves into a rut because of a misunderstanding of freedom and a misunderstanding really of, of, uh, of creation. All right. Yeah, I would agree with and that. And how it relates to God and God's relationship with creation. There was a, maybe two years ago or something, there was a conference at the Vatican at the Pontifical Academy for Life, putting on this great conference. And they had all the, it was on like AI and ethics and robots. And, and uh, they had statements signed. And, and one of the speakers was, um, when she was in the book of abstract, she was, talking about technology and Tao and key. And she, she's, she lectures at uh, uh, Catholic University in the States. So I, I see a connection there. And I think these people at the Vatican definitely saw a connection there. I looked into her books and she had nothing kind of explicitly on technology, but that's what the conference was on. And she was going there. When was this conference? Do you remember? Like two years ago or something. And they published the proceedings or something? Yeah, they published at least the abstract. Yeah, I'll take a look. Oh, that's not it. Yeah, I can send you the, the link. Yeah, I'd like to put it into the uh, notes with the podcast. So if people are interested, because I am, I, 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 as will come out of my, um, you know, to be doing a solo podcast on AI and artificial general intelligence. And, um, yeah, I have some definite opinions about it. And I'd be curious to see what they said about technology and, you know how 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 they view positive and negative aspects of it. Yeah. How do, you okay, know. I got it. I got it. The good algorithm: artificial intelligence, ethics, law, health. February 2020, Pontifical Academy for Life. So there's a great. Some of the main speakers there were Luciano Floridi. So he's done a lot of work on the philosophy and the ethics of technology. Right. right. And then this uh, Robin R. Wang from Loyola. Marymount University was talking about flowing of life and static of machine, a Taoist perspective on AI. All right, I'll definitely have to look that up. I have a, have a very, I shouldn't say, I, I don't, to me, AI is nothing more than computational statistics. So when people start to think through it in, in more generalized terms or thinking of AI as something more than just computational statistics, I start to, uh, the hairs on the back of my neck go up. <laughs> And so I definitely will, I read it with an open mind, but uh, I, I don't believe in AI as it's it's a tool and it's a good tool. It helps you out a lot 
and it's very powerful. It helps in very niche areas and important areas uh, to replace humans. Um, but it's it's not even close to you know what people think about it becoming artificial general intelligence or being able to simulate or do what a human can do. Um, I I I I, you know, I come at all this from an empirical perspective. And to me, the Turing test is is kind of a so what. I, I can beat the Turing test with it with a, a really good chatbot. So, what good is it, right? And but I have another test that I'll talk about that I think is much more applicable. But uh, yeah, I'll definitely read that without a doubt. So, well, listen, Jeff, thank you very much. Oh, it's been so fun to yeah. uh, to talk with you. We've been going at it for a yeah. good while now. I had, yeah, I had a two time. hours. Yeah, this might be the record. I might have to send you a coffee mug or something because you have the record so far. <laughs> but thanks for. You can get me. You can get me a cold one or something if you oh, go yeah. to the STS conference next time. Or if you come to Chicago again, let me know. Great. Thanks very much. Alrighty. Take care. <laughs>